Welcome, everyone, to After Further Review. Mark Ferreira, John Pelkey, Jeff Taylor, our producer. We have not been on the air. We have not recorded since Monday. This is our first attempt at this two-show-a-week thing. Kind of a mixed uh, mixed bag of reaction, John Pelkey, from our, you know, from our seven or eight fans. The idea, right. of course, is to expand the base. Right. But whilst doing that, we may be shrinking the base. We've angered well. the base. We, we may we have angered the base. We, we may have. And that's something that, uh, you know, most smart uh, politicians slash businessmen don't like to do. But we're right. doing it right now. And we're, and we're uh, not smart or businessmen. No. no. So we, we have nothing. We have nothing going on at all. Jeff, you're doing well. Everything OK in your world? I'm doing great. And everything is great. Love everything. That's good. He loves everything. John Pelkey, are you excited about this deep dive today? It's deep dive four. It is. It is. It was a disappointing night last night with the uh, biblical downpour at uh, Nationals Park, preventing the Nationals from what was a, an obvious uh, comeback situation against the hated New York Yankees. Um, so uh, Yankees are in first place. So I'm sure every one of their fans is getting fitted for their ring. Oh, yeah. Uh, so it's Dodgers Enjoy. Yankees. Dodgers Yankees. I mean, let's just book it right now. Dodgers Ooh. Yankees. Giants hang on, hung on for a while, but by they the did. seventh, and I I went to bed after the sixth. So I'm yeah, like, so, so maybe that was it. You should have you should have stayed up and, and I really should have given them a, a little love. All right, folks. Well, deep dive four coming up right now, and it's about Philadelphia and it's about their turnaround from a horrific sports town in 1972 to. Uh, um, to one of the best sports down in 1980 in an eight-year period. All four of their teams made remarkable turnarounds. And I guess the first question is, and we talked about this before the show, John, is that why this topic? Why this one? And I do have a soft spot for Philadelphia. I really uh-huh. do. I think any uh, a true American should have a soft spot for Philadelphia because of the history of nothing else, even though they may have only had a great 18th century, it was a hell of a great 18th century. really was. Uh, Number one. Uh, number two, also, it goes back personally. My first season of summer stock back in 1983 was in Mount Gretna, PA, which is really close to Philadelphia. And uh, so I would visit that town a lot and really enjoyed it. And this is the other major reason I have a soft spot for Philly, because there's not one, John, but there are two athletes coming out of Philadelphia, both named Bobby Taylor. Ah, well, Flyers, well. Flyers backup goalie. And, and defensive uh, back and, for the Eagles. And an Eagles defensive back. And I think Two. he's a Notre Dame guy, too, by the way, Bobby Taylor, the Notre, uh, the Eagles. So, obviously, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this particular topic. I have a soft spot. It's going to be a lot of fun. So, let's say what we can have right now. All right. Can I just say for the record, I, I take my hat off to you for doing this because this is, when you said it, I thought, wow, he's opening himself up for like a huge esoteric discussion versus, you know, me, I've narrowed it down to going a team that won three World Series and I could focus on that and a team that uh, surprised everyone in one World Series. But no, you went global. You went macro and said, here we go, Philadelphia. I, I love it. I can't wait. Let's do this. So we'll see. We'll see if the macro is a, is a, is a good idea or not. All right. So there in 1972, you see the records of the Flyers. Now that's, uh, that's their 70, uh, their 71, 72 season. Right. That's the Eagles 72 season. 
The 76ers is the 72-73 season. Yeek. And uh, Philadelphia Phillies, 59. So you see all of that. It's atrocious. Now, what the um, what the actual, if you just take, because obviously the Flyers and the 76ers yeah. uh, split the years. If you just look at in the calendar year of 1972, they were 110 and 208 and 16. 110, 208, and 16. That's a 353 winning percentage. Right. John, that, that is the worst of all time. It is that the worst is, of all time. For yeah. anybody listening uh, at the podcast, I'm gonna, I'll just run through these really, really quickly. Uh, the Flyers were 26, 38, and 14. And don't gasp, folks. That's the most successful of the teams. Yep. The Eagles were 2, 11, and 1. I want to know who that one tie was because, oh, boy, that must have been something. Uh, 76ers were – that's not a typo, right? 9 no, and 73. Not. Yeah. Yep. You and I, who are uh, 5, 6, and 5, 8, respectively, and three other guys under 6 feet could probably have won 10 games that year. They went 9 and 73, yeah. and the Phillies were 59 and 103. It is really hard to believe that one that all those teams were that bad. In one city that happened. Oh, oh. And 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 we'll let you know that those two wins of the Eagles as well, they were 211 and 1. Yeah. <laughs> the margin of victory for both of those, John, yeah. one point each. Wow. Are those the Norm Sneed quarterbacked Philadelphia Eagles? Or has he moved along? No, yeah. They had a they had a a, a guy named uh Le- Pat Lesh, who was yeah, a Lesh. veteran veteran uh, journeyman, and then they and then they had a draft because they were six we'll get to that, but they were six, seven, and one in, in, in nineteen seventy one and had some high hopes and it all depended yeah. on that seventy two draft and it didn't go well. But let's let's go back to the macro. That's seventy two. Now in nineteen eighty, a mere eight years later. The Flyers are in the Stanley Cup Finals. The Eagles are in the Super Bowl. The 76ers are in the NBA Finals. And the Phillies win the World Series. So, John, from that destitute, horrible 353 winning percentage, the lowest annual winning percentage of for any for any American sports city, uh, every single one of their teams in 1980 competed for a championship. It's remarkable. It really is remarkable. So let's take exa- a look at this. Philadelphia phenomenon. <laughs> For those of you listening to the podcast, Mark is so happy about his PowerPoint presentation. The Philadelphia phenomenon just flew in from the bottom. It really did. Uh, I'm very pleased about it. All right. So let's go back to 72. And we've got to look at the city itself. The city uh, was in 72. John, we, we've we lived through this era. Uh, Jeff didn't. But we were kids. But yeah. looking back, the 70s, the, the early 70s, late 60s, and, and a lot of the 70s, really, uh, American cities were sort of crumbling. And uh, a lot of the things people had counted on, institutions people had counted on, felt like they were crumbling. Economic uh, shifts were going on, certainly in Pennsylvania. And it felt like things were deteriorating in Philly. Uh, the neighborhoods, the factories that the just seemed like it was getting run down. And and it seems like it, sort of the, the glory days of Philadelphia were, were gone at that point in time. And the in, in a way, I would say Philadelphia is a little bit of a microcosm of the entire country. So that that pain that the country was feeling, it was, you know, it, it was in the beginnings of their malaise. We're we're, you know, still encountering Vietnam. We're about to encounter Watergate. That people just didn't feel good about the country, frankly. And on top of this, they were 
considered a city of losers. So in a lot of ways, John, we've talked about this. Pittsburgh during the 70s, mm-hmm. the steel industry goes down. Well, they got they have the Steelers. to look mm-hmm. You know, even San Francisco with the AIDS scourge going on right. in the 80s, they've got the 49ers. You right. know, D- Detroit is burning in 1968. They win the World Series. Didn't happen that way for Philadelphia. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the escape and the salve that sports can offer was not there for them. They could not escape. They literally couldn't do it. Uh, it, it basically, the, the state of the sports in Philadelphia mirrored the city itself. Hmm. So let's talk about each of the four teams at 72 right now. We'll start with the Phillies. It's Frank Lucchese was their, uh, was their manager. Fired mid-72, by the way, uh, 26 and 50. And he was so clueless that he thought he was being made a scapegoat. The team was 26 and 50. And he was let go and he was upset. Uh, this is a team that won 59 games, as mentioned before. 59 games. Steve Carlton won 27. So he won 46% of their games. And this at least brought some people out to a veteran, newly minted veteran stadium, which was uh, opened in 1971. So it brought some people out there because they had never had a Cy Young Award winner. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I think hadn't had a a ERA leader in, you know, 25 years or so. But think about that. 27 wins for Steve Carlton. The other three starters combined, Bill Chapman, Woody Fryman, by the way, Ken Reynolds, 10 and 39. That was the rest of his staff, 10 and 39. He won. He won 27 for the Eagles. Chapman, Fryman, and Reynolds, though, went on to purchase a number of Taco Bell franchises in the greater yeah. Philadelphia area and are very, very financially stable right now. That very, very good. And they have uh, their brothers uh, run a law firm in Philly as well. So it's really, really fun. Good for them. It's, it, it's, a, it's a story of redemption, like this entire deep dive is. So in 72, we talked about this. They were uh, The Eagles were 2-11-1. Those both wins uh, were by one-point margins. So this was a very, very bad team. But as mentioned before, in 71, they were 6-7, six 6-7-1. And, seven, six, seven and, and if they had a good draft, they were you know, thinking they were moving forward. Well, sure. they drafted in the first round their very first pick, with the 14th pick overall, uh, a guy named John Reeves, who was out of Florida, who became a super bust, yeah. a super-duper bust. And as we all know, if you throw everything on a first-round pick for a quarterback yep. and it's a bust, it's going to set your franchise back a bit. We've asked that question. What's worse, to pass on a quarterback who turns out to be great or to draft a quarterback who uh, turns out to be a bust? And I think both you and I agreed the bust one is the worst worst situation for you. Yeah. And Reeves was bad. It will set, yeah, it will set you back, and it did for the Eagles for a long time. They won a championship in 60, and uh, for the next dozen-plus years, they averaged four-and-a-half victories a season. This is a long stretch. Yeah. It's a long stretch. They had been, and and both with the Phillies and uh, the Eagles, the Eagles had won in 1960, won a championship, but they had been on a long downward spiral, essentially. And uh, the Phillies had just essentially, every everything that I've ever researched, the 69 Mets, the, the amazing A's, I've now gone back to the, uh, for my deep dive is back into the 40s. Every one of them at some point talks about how bad the Phillies are. Yeah. Yeah. They were just terrible for a long, the long, long, long poor Phillies, the poor <laughs> Eagles. And now we're talking about the Sixers who have now had five. They want to, they want to. 
title in 1967. Right. This this was a pretty good basketball town. The Warriors were there first. They moved to San Francisco, and then the Nationals out of Syracuse came into Philadelphia. There was just a one year gap there, and 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 the Philadelphia uh, 76ers had Wilt Chamberlain a year in that this was a, this was a good basketball town. Billy Cunningham was there. Hal Greer, all those three are mm-hmm. all the famers. They win it. They win a championship in 67. And then they go five consecutive years where every one of their number one draft picks are busts. <laughs> Seriously. And so by the time their coach was hired for the, the season of uh, 70, um, 72, 73, it was Roy Rubin was his name, and they called him the, the Philadelphia Inquirer. Apparently, apparently he answered an ad for the Philadelphia Inquirer. That's how bad it was to be the coach of the 76ers, and they called him poor Roy Rubin. And so no one was surprised when he only lasted 51 games that season. Wow. And he lost 47 of them. Okay. Normally, I would say don't pull the trigger that quickly, but yeah, pull the trigger. By the way, uh, I got a look at that ad, uh, and uh, the ad just said "coach needed for team." So that I mean, that literally, they didn't want to put that it was the Seventy Sixers. So Roy the Sandwich Rubin did not and work out. We t- we talked about how Philadelphia didn't feel like they got any respect. It was a hard scrabble city, and it was a blue collar city, and and they were. Uh, just very down on themselves. So the Inquirer said about Roy Rubin, they said the uh, the voice was Rodney Dangerfield, the paunch was Jackie Gleason, and the mission was impossible. So there it is. There's the there's your 70s references, early 70s references. Love there. it. All right. And so now let's go to the Flyers. The Flyers, of course, um, were an expansion team, uh, part of the first expansion of the National Hockey League in 1967, along with the Blues and the North Stars, the Kings and the Seals, as well as the uh, Pittsburgh Penguins. Uh, joined the original six in 67. And Ed Snyder uh, is the uh, the guy who owned the team, kind of owned the group that owned the Spectrum, mm-hmm. which was the arena that the 76ers and the uh, Flyers were in. And, and you know, he, he did a nice job, but they had five straight losing seasons uh, uh, at this point. And the 71-72 season ended tough because all they had to do was tie to get into the playoffs. And remember, this is when teams tied in the National Hockey League yes. when ties were a thing. So they it was 2-2 two to two against the Sabres with 10 seconds left, and the Sabres got it. And, and like from the blue line, this guy th- hit a desperation shot and went in, and it was just emblematic. Mm. Just broke their hearts. They couldn't make it. And, uh, and not only that, not only that, but this was a pretty good team. They 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 had a, a pretty good team. They drafted Bernie Perrant in in '67. They traded him away, of course, and um, and then brought him back. Um, he did win a Vezina Trophy two times in a row. They also they also drafted Bobby Clark, who turned out to be a, a phenomenal Hall of Fame player. Yep. But at this point in time, they were still getting beat up. They were being intimidated. They're the ones that were taking sucker punches. Right. They're the ones that felt like they were getting annihilated on the ice. And Snyder, the owner, made a commitment around 69 that says, we're going to draft some hefty guys. Mm-hmm. And none other than this dude right here, Dave Schultz. Dave oh. Schultz, drafted in 69, comes up in the 72-73 season and literally changes everything. You know, that allows Bobby Clark to be more to, to play more dirty, to have more of the spirit of Philadelphia in there because he's protected now, so he can do some things. Bobby Clark can do that, 
And Dave Schultz, literally, he gets up there and the whole the whole team changes. Yeah. I mean, the whole team started beating people up. Yeah, because Clark was known. He was a very talented guy. He had great hands, great skater speed. He was that guy. But once right. once this happened, Clark turned into a fighter. He did. And that's because he knew he could do whatever he wanted and he'd right. be protected by his goons. And they sort of invented this whole idea of of goons. They they really they, they took it to another level. They were the Elvis Presley, if you will, of goons. They had uh, they were called the first fist foursome. <laughs> and literally they would be out there just hammering people. And this is what this is. Rules have changed since then. But the rules changed because of the Philadelphia Flyers. And uh, they had an amazing run as a result of this because it freed up their offense and their offense was very talented led by Bobby Clark in 72 73. There were five flyers that scored 30 or more goals. And that is pretty significant. Wow. So of course, of course he would take liberties. Bobby Clark at this point, he knew he was protected. He was going to be fine. He ends up winning three heart trophies, three MVPs. He even wins a bill Masterson award for this. Most sportsmanlike guy. I'm not sure how that happened. That was, I think that was in 72. It was just a weird year overall. But I'll right. tell you, this started the comeback for the entire city because they started to win. They, they finally won their first playoff series in 72, 73, beat the North Stars. The spectrum was starting to fill up every night and they, it, it, they were presenting the, they were you know, giving them the antidote. You know, the Philadelphians needed something and the Flyers were it in 72, 73. And then it just went on from there. And we'll talk about that in a bit. But it was a blue collar team, blue collar city. And uh, there was a real bond between the between the Flyers and the city of Philadelphia. So now we're still in 72, 73 era. And we're talking about the Phillies. We're talking about Frank Lucchese getting fired. Well, who took his place? was Paul Owens, this guy. This guy was the GM. He was really a player development guy. Mm-hmm. And then they they uh, advanced him to be the GM. And in his place for the player development guy was Dallas Green. That happened in mid-1972. Wow. So the pieces were in place mm-hmm. to build this team from here on out. So he not only was the GM, but he took over Frank Lucchese's position. And just wanted to see firsthand what he had. It wasn't right. a Ted so he Turner. He was the field manager as he well. Was, for a he while. was. Yeah. He was the manager, and it wasn't a Ted Turner one day. It was like, you know, uh, a good portion of the season. And uh, I once worked for a guy who was had been a vice president for a company, and he said, like, the, for the month before he actually took over his vice president role, he went and got a job as a laborer for that company and worked it for a month, so that when he got the gig, he knew. Really, you know what what the yeah. issues were top to bottom. So that's really really smart for Paul Owens. He's a guy who probably doesn't get enough uh, mention anywhere. Well, I I think Paul Owens is huge. Now, if you're a Philly fan, I talked to some Philly fans during this week, and uh, they totally know this guy. They know yeah. all about him, and they know what he did uh, as as a GM, not as an owner, but as a GM. And so he saw he saw that there was Steve Carlton. They already had Steve Carlton there, obviously. They also had uh, Larry Boa who he didn't get along with too much, but no one is surprised by that. Nobody uh, got along with Larry Boa. (laughs) And Greg Luzinski. So those guys were on the team. He felt he had a a decent nucleus, especially with the two call-ups that he called up late 72 in September, Mike Schmidt and Bob Boone. So he has Boone, Schmidt, Luzinski, Carlton, and Boa. Wow. And essentially... 
essentially all of them are homegrown talent. That's the other thing Philadelphians loved. So what Owens did essentially is he moved pieces around and he had a lot of good homegrown talent. Then he would make some key trades. We'll talk about those later and then add some good veteran leadership and the like. As a matter of fact, he brought over Tim McCarver when, uh, uh, and of course, uh, Carlton wasn't homegrown because he was from St. Louis, but the right. rest were. And Car- McCarver caught Carlton in St. Louis. And as a matter of fact, the only, the only, uh, catcher Carlton would ever have would be, uh, would be Tim McCarver, which is uh, a, a remarkable thing. So let me see if I can get back to where I'm. And, and McCarver, here. and McCarver was the main catcher for both he and for Bob Gibson. McCarver and Bob Gibson were very, very close as well. So, uh, and and both, from what I've seen, Carlton and Gibson have given uh, McCarver a lot of credit for their success. For people who just remember him as a broadcaster, right? Exactly. So, I'm not sure what my problem is here. I have all these pictures showing. All the slides are up at once. They are. They I are love all it. up at once. There we go. All right. Okay. So, so that's what that's what Owen thought he had. So now we're looking at the Sixers. Uh, and again, Dallas Green is the player development guy, and Danny Ozark is who took over in 73 for the Philadelphia Phillies and ended up having a lot of success. All right, so the 76ers now, we're talking a 9 and 73 year in 72 and 73. And uh, so what happens for the following year? Uh, again, we talked about this. We talked about it being a great basketball town. We talked about how, uh, they won a championship. Uh, Billy Cunningham was a, uh, another homegrown guy that actually left for the ABA. And when he left is when everything started falling apart. Uh, that he left in 72. He did come back, but, uh, that really was the precipice of the nine and 73 season. So they hired Gene Shue in 1973. And he starts building this team up a little bit. And then in 1974, this is another huge move and a huge uh, cornerstone in building Philadelphia into the city. We're talking about the, the Philadelphia phenomenon. They hire Pat Williams. And we all know Pat Williams, who basically started the Orlando Magic down here and was a GM. And now, as I, I think the official title is, is senior GM. But he was a 29-year-old kid who had already been a GM for the Hawks and for the Bulls. Mm-hmm. And he was 29, and they hire him. And um, what what he was able to do for Philadelphia was amazing. Let's start with purchasing Dr. J from the New Jersey Nets. We'll get into that story. We'll get into why the New Jersey Nets were selling Dr. J at the time. But he did that. He brought four finals trips to the 76ers which is remarkable. He's responsible for George McGinnis, Daryl Dawkins, Henry Bibby, Mo Cheeks. Mm. He fired Gene Shue at one point and replaced him with Billy Cunningham. But Pat Williams, to me, is probably the most key member of this Philadelphia turnaround in, in, the, 19, uh, in the 1970s. There's Billy Cunningham as a player, and there's Pat Williams <laughs> as well. I don't know what's happening out here. Okay, I, I think... Okay, here we go. I'm For so those of you listening to the podcast, the slideshow has become self-aware. Yes, what to show us. There's there's lots there's lots to handle, and it's uh, I yep. don't have the technology that I should at this point in time. So here we go, here we go. Let's talk about the flyers again. Now we're t- talking about. See, okay, I'm so sorry. I'm so I, I can't not talk about it. 
Gosh. No, it's it's no, it's perfectly fine. Now screens we don't know are showing up. Now there are emails saying that I have uh, perhaps eighteen billion dollars if I'll just send this Nigerian prince my bank account number. All right, so here we go. I'm having a another issue with with the. Uh, you know, and I shouldn't be talking about this. I know we've it's, gotten we've gotten the notes. Yeah. But those are the same people who are going to leave us because we're only doing two shows a week anyway, Mark. So maybe you know. that's true. All right. So we released the concept album. It's going to grow our, our the crowd. But the people who are used to our three chord blues rock albums, they're not going to care for this at all. No, they're going to throw the album across the room. Yep. Like uh, many purebred uh, Rolling Stones fans did when they listened to some girls, which I still can't get over at this point in time. All right. So here we go. We're looking at the 73, 74 flyers. That's Pat Williams that you're seeing on your screen. If you indeed are watching us uh, in 1973, 74 flyers are, are, are set to go. They've already won their first playoff series. Mm-hmm. They've got Dave Schultz. They've got the, the first fist foursome <laughs> and uh, they're coached. In this season and, and and in the previous couple of seasons by Freddie Shiro. They call him the fog. Freddie the and, fog Shiro. Yeah, Freddie the fog. And he's still the all-time Flyers leader, uh, coaching leader in victories. And 73-74 was the first. Oh, do I need to share my screen again? I'm so yeah, sorry. I, I, was, I didn't want to stop you and say I'm not seeing any of this, but, 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 it, but it's all right. It, it's no, okay. I, I don't want to throw you off. You can continue to talk as I try and fix this um, entire thing. Yes, uh, Freddie the Fog it was known as the Fog because he was a kind of a mysterious guy. There's a great story about Freddie the Fog. Uh, I believe it was in at, maybe Atlanta or something. The team was down there, uh, and he would just he would just disappear, and they couldn't find him. And like <laughs> next day, he showed up, and he'd apparently been in a fight. Because he had a black yeah, guy. That's a great story. They never did find out what Fred Shiro did, but he was a great, great hockey coach. Well, and part of it was that he was very innovative. And we'll talk about some of uh, the major innovations that he did later that led to a lot of the success. But in terms of basic things, he was one of the first guys to employ assistant coaches. Mm-hmm. He was one of the first guys to set up systems for his team, set plays and, and the like. He uh, was the first, one of the first to use uh, strength training, uh, in-season strength training. He studied film, and uh, he was one of the first coaches to utilize the, mor- the morning skate. So he was quite innovative. As a matter of fact, the NHL uh, put him into the Hall of Fame as a builder. They called him a builder. Because of um, because of what he contributed, and the seventy three seventy four season was the first of four consecutive seasons for Shiro that he had a seven hundred or greater percentage, seven hundred or greater percentage. Now, uh, for the podcast listeners, excuse me, but can you see the screen at this point in time? Can you see the slides? I can see the Flyers logo. Very good. All right, That's what I'm seeing. All right, so here we go. So uh, in seventy three seventy four. That's Fred Shiro right there. I'm not sure why I didn't go to him while I was talking about all those things. There he is. Look at that guy. Look at him. You don't want to mess with Freddie the Fog. No, you really don't. <laughs> There's Bernie Perron again, who, oh, by the way, in 73, 74, uh, finished uh, in the head of the league in goals against average, 12 shutouts, 47 wins. And that 47 wins in 73, 74, that held for 33 years until Mar- Martin Brodeur broke that in 07 and had 48 wins. And you know who has tied him? What goaltender has tied Martin Brodeur for 48, beating Bernie Perrant's record of 47? 
Tried Marty Brodeur, Pete Perrance. Happened in 16. Right. 2016. Oh, gosh. I should uh, I should know that. And you I should, because it's Holtby. Oh, what is it? Oh, wow. See, I should have known. Jeff yeah. would have known. Jeff would know. I don't know. I don't. I. I, I can't. Cont- statistics like that run out of my brain. But Brayden Holtby. So, so uh, at that point in time, they they make the semis. At the uh, they they win their first series and they make the semis. And in the semifinal round, they were underdogs to the Rangers. Remember, at this point in time, no no uh, expansion team had ever beaten an original six team in the playoffs mm-hmm. until 1974 when Philadelphia meets up with New York and New York and they go seven games. Uh, it was phenomenal. Now they Rangers they, or Islanders, the Rangers, this okay. is the, cause it's an original six team. It's the first oh, time this has ever happened. happened. Okay. Sorry. First time it's ever happened. So My now, bad. now they have to go uh, and face the Bruins and the Bruins are, uh, they've got home ice. So it's, going to be tough to go to Boston but they they get a split in Boston and then they uh and then they are able to get to game 6 so they're up 3-2 they were up 3-1 and they went to Boston and Boston killed them 5 nothing so now it's game 6 back at the spectrum and they know they have to win game 6 they go back to Boston it's not going to go back to the great. garden got it and so what happened is they brought in their lucky charm Kate Smith <laughs> you know about you know about Kate Smith and what she did for the Flyers and the Spectrum. I, I do very much so because my my dad, uh, my parents were uh, World War II age. My mom was young, but my dad joined the Navy in '45. And Kate Smith, that's I, I mean that that that's his generation, one of his generation stars. So probably the first time way I ever heard about the Flyers was that my dad bringing up the Kate Smith with uh, singing at Flyers games. And the, and the way this started was the head of the uh, spectrum operations team, not Snyder, but the operations guy, you know, it was 69 and he was looking around and, you know, there was a lot of anti-American feeling. The war was happening. People were apathetic. And literally during the national anthem, people were just walking around. And he didn't like that. So one night he just went to the, the, to, to the, to the booth, if you will, to the PA booth and said, here, play this instead. And the guy said, what? He said, go ahead. And sure enough, people started listening, paying attention <laughs> and they won. Okay. So of course you're going to bring her back as often as you can because it's good luck. As a matter of fact, in the five years she did this on a semi regular basis, the flyers were 35, three and one. So they bring her back for game six, and now they're 36, three, and one. It's uh, remarkable. Bernie Perron had a shutout in that game. He also won the, the Con Smythe back to uh, – he, he, won, uh, he won the Con Smythe, and he, and he won it the next year as well. Like I said, he won the Vezina Trophy two years in a row. He won the Con Smythe Trophy two years in a row as well, and he shut out the Boston Bruins one to nothing in game six. So – Back to Kate Smith. Kate Smith had a statue outside uh, the new arena. The um, the new arena they have up there. They have no, don't, don't, naming of arenas now. I've just lost my, the thread on all of that. They change constantly. Citizens it's, Bank and it's Lincoln Financial, but I don't know what the arena is. And um, they tore it down. They yeah, tore the statue down in 19 because of songs that she recorded in the 30s. And I don't want to go into them, but they're they're essentially minstrel know, songs. They were, yeah, they, were they were minstrel. They're, songs. they're pretty over the top. 
Yep. And yes, it was for that time. Yes, yes, yes. But they took down the statue of the woman who essentially many thought may have been responsible for their first Stanley Cup. And sadly, because of that, no one will ever remember the name Kate Smith. Thank not gone history. And so, of course, the next year they they uh, they win another cup. They're inspiring all kinds of hate uh, 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 around the league. I mean, it really is true hatred. Purists think they're evil. Yeah. The hockey purists think they're evil. You know, when when they come into town, it's like lock up your women and children. The animals are here. And that was the reputation of the Flyers. And let's face it, there wouldn't be so much hatred if they didn't win two in a row. Oh, absolutely. That was the problem. And probably the league might have come down on some of those rules earlier if they hadn't have been as successful uh, with winning games as well. I, I, I said this once before, uh, I think, on the show, and I think it was 1979, and huge Capitals fan. I hate the Flyers because of that. But there was a picture in the Washington Post sports page that said standing room only, and it showed the, pre- uh, the penalty box for a Flyers-Capitals game in Philadelphia. And there were guys who were, like, leaning out over the ice because not only was there nowhere to sit in the penalty box, there was barely anywhere to stand. There were, like, six guys from one team and five yeah. from the other. And that was, yeah. a, that was a nightly occurrence for the Flyers. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. They just engendered so much of that. All right, so now it's 74-75 for the 76ers. Things are starting to turn around with all of the teams. Uh, in uh, They won 34 games in this year, so they went from 9 to 25 to 34. The Phillies in 1975 traded for Gary Maddox. That was a big pickup for Paul Owen, and they also traded for Tug McGraw, another big pickup. So we're last seen in my 69 Mets deep dive as a relief pitcher for the Mets. There it is. There it is. And these, of course, guys are, yeah, Tug's from New York, but originally from Philadelphia. I think he's originally a a Philly guy and uh, Maddox from the San Francisco organization. All right. So that's part one. That's the depths, mining the depths, seeing where they were, seeing what uh, key players and coaches and general managers stepped in to start this turnaround Welcome to part two, which is 1976 and the heady times. 1976, John, for Philadelphia was something else. Let's start on January 11th, 1976. Oh, you know, it's the Soviet Red Army versus the Flyers at the Spectrum. (laughs) Now, the Red Army team was heads and tails above everyone. They had done a tour throughout throughout late 75. They had played four games against NHL clubs. They, they defeated the Boston. They defeated the Bruins. They defeated the Rangers. And they tied against the Canadiens. So they have yet to lose when they play Philly in the, um, in the spectrum. And so you know what? You know what Shiro did? This guy was an innovative coach. Shiro essentially said because, because the Russians, the Soviets, depended on yeah. you chasing the puck. Right. And then because they were so skilled – they could pass it to areas where there wasn't anyone there and there would be someone there. They were, they were just so advanced and fast and skilled. So what Shiro essentially did was that he told him not to chase the puck. Don't chase the puck. Hold your positions. Essentially, essentially, he sort of came up with a neutral zone trap right. against, against the Soviets, and they didn't know what to do. They were totally frustrated. And then on top of that, they're getting pounded. (laughs) They're getting pounded when they thought there's normal checking. They're seriously getting pounded. And after a an alleged elbow 
from, I believe, of course, Dave Schultz <laughs> to one of the Soviets that was not called a penalty because this, this is in the spectrum, mind you. <laughs> the Soviets walked off the ice. This is mid first period. Mm. And you could hear them talking. And then you could overhear Ed Snyder yelling to the commissioner is that they're not going to get paid. Tell them they're not going to get paid. Sure enough, communists with their tail between their legs come back out. Evidently, they're more capitalistic than we thought, John. <laughs> Victor Tikhanov, I believe, was the head coach of that team that pulled them off the ice. And I think the rumor is that uh, some members of the party uh, made Tikhanov take the team back out on the ice, if I have that story correct. I don't know. You did the deep dive, but uh, yeah, that, uh, that, that, that's very, very, very famous. And also, you have to point out that the Russians are playing on a smaller sheet of ice than they normally did in international play, which made it much, much easier for that zone defense to work. And I'd like to think that, yeah, I I like to think that it was uh, Boris Mikhailov that, uh, that Dave Schultz took apart because he was considered the best player in the world about that time. Well, and no one had, no one had beaten them. No one had figured that out yet and leave it to Fred Shiro and those flyers to do it. And that was a big, big deal. And here it is, the beginning of 1976, celebrating 200 years in Philadelphia. They're beating back the Russians. They beat them four to one. They took 49 shots, uh, the flyers, and the Soviets took 13. <laughs> it was an annihilation. The Soviets did not know what to do. They did right. not know what to do. So now we're talking January 20th. We're talking just a, a week later. The Spectrum hosts the NHL All-Star Game. Then, a couple weeks later, they ho- the Spectrum again hosts the NBA All-Star Game. Then, we're talking five days later, February 8th, the Eagles hired Dick Vermeil. Okay? So, this is the guy that is going to bring them to the promised land. We're talking five weeks into 1976. Already, it's an epic year. Yeah. For the city of Philadelphia. He, they hire him literally. It's February 8th, John. He had just come off of the Rose Bowl victory against Ohio State. Right. He coached the Bruins two years prior. And the Bruins be, not only won the Pac-8, but they beat the number one team in the country, Ohio State. It was def, It was a huge upset. Fresh off of that, Philadelphia plucks him up. And, uh, you know, again, I was telling that the, the Eagles won a championship in 60. They'd average four and a half wins for the next dozen, 15 years. They already had Harold Carmichael there. Um, but because of all of the mismanagement of, of the Eagles, Vermeil did not have a first round pick until 1979. Wow. So he inherited an empty cupboard in a lot of ways. It was and- the coach before Vermeil and I'm sorry Mark and I I, I hate to but I just uh, this is interesting but was it Mike McCormick was the coach before Vermeil? He was. Yeah, and he came out of the Washington Redskin um uh tree which George Allen was the coach in Washington at the time and he did the same thing to the Skins. They didn't have a draft pick uh until 1980. Right. So I guess that was that old school aesthetic for these guys who didn't know how to use the NFL draft which at that time was not what it is today. So he doesn't have a first-round pick. The cupboard is pretty empty. And so, of course, the myth around that is that he held those open workouts, those open tryouts, which is the movie Invincible. Uh, and his name is Vince Papale, I think. Papale. Uh, Vince Papale. It's a good movie, actually. And it is a good movie, but the truth is nothing like that. Papale had played for the World Football League just right. the previous year. Right. And he had a private tryout with Vermeil. Uh, but we can still enjoy the movie and still enjoy the uh, the uh, romance. I would also the point Eagles. out. 
I would also point out, because you always shoehorn some level of uh, San Francisco stuff, and I'm going to shoehorn some more Washington football team stuff in there, is that George Allen actually held those open tryouts as well. And from the open tryouts, signed a guy named Herb Mulkey, who played, I think, four years in the NFL, largely as a kick returner. So, wow. again, it just depends on where the screenwriter's from, what gets made. That's true. So now we're in February. Already it's been an epic year. Let's go to March. We're back to the Spectrum, John. They're hosting the Final Four. So the Spectrum hosts the Red Army game, the NHL All-Star game, the NBA All-Star game, and the Final Four. You can guess where the Major League Baseball All-Star game is going to be played in 1976. So that's pretty fun. Now with the Flyers, we're talking now 1976. They go to their third straight Stanley Cup Finals. Bobby Clark wins his third Hart Trophy, but they don't they don't make it that time. They lose the Canadians, but Bernie Perrant was injured, and I think that was a big part of it. But you know who was coaching that Canadian team that beat the uh, Flyers to stop them from winning three in a row? I'm going to go with our old and dear friend, Scotty Bowman. Old and dear friend, Scotty Bowman. Nice Who work. is actually, Mark and I have dealt with Scotty many, many, many times. Great guy and the best NHL coach of all time. So this is May. It's still pretty good times in Philadelphia. It's three straight, by the way, that they've gone to. And yes, they lose to Montreal, but Bobby Clark is has won another trophy. And now we're going to go to June of 1976. There's Bobby Clark. Mm. And uh, here's some great, uh, you know, wonderful uh, pictures of this, of the, uh, of the bicentennial. But before we go there, I just want to put this in there. We don't have a picture for it. Unfortunately, is that in June, June 17th of that year, the NBA and the ABA merged. Mm. And that is a big, big deal. You'll see why in a little bit. So here it is. It's the bicentennial city. Frank Rizzo. Hey, Frankie. Frank, yeah. Frank Rizzo. Not, not a good guy. Not a good. Did he do time? He did time, right? He may have. He may have. (laughs) Or he should have. Certainly, there were wagon trains that went across the country that ended up in Valley Forge. I remember. And 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 I talked to Philadelphians this week that are pretty clear-eyed about American history. They don't romanticize things too much. They they look at it pretty soberly. And they tell me they were living in Philadelphia at the time that those things were great. There was the world's biggest birthday cake. Mm-hmm. It was the wagon train to Valley Forge. Gerald Ford spoke at Independence Hall. They painted the fire hydrants red, white, and blue. And these, you know, grizzled, hardened, you know, liberal types yeah. loved it. Yeah, loved it. And it was a huge lift for the entire city. So this is now in the summer of this already epic year. So let's go to a little, you know, a few days after July 4th, there's Veterans Stadium. It's not the all-star game. It probably would be filled up if it was the all-star game. But uh, <laughs> they hosted the all-star game in Veterans Stadium. All right. So now we're continuing in 1976. The Phillies make it to the postseason in 76 for the first time since 1950. And remember, the Phillies have never won a World Series at this right. point in time. Never won a World Series, John. And they'd only been to two. And you know the other thing about the Philadelphia Phillies? They were the last National League team to integrate as well. They made their first postseason trip. And they, uh, you know, they, they won their first of three straight division crowns. They lose to the Big Red Machine, who we talked about in the last, or I talked about in my last uh, deep dive. That mm-hmm. was a juggernaut team in 1976. I don't think anyone felt bad on Philadelphia that they lost that series three to nothing. 
Uh, but this is what's interesting about that Philly team because we we look back on that. And it's like, oh, yeah, 76, 77, 78. They won all those years. So this is a good team right now. But you have to put your yourself in the mindset of a Philadelphia Philly fan. The last time they were competitive at all was 1964 when they had a six-and-a-half game lead with 12 to play and lost it. Gene Mock, <laughs> clam as he is, uh, lost it. And this Philly team was rolling. This Philly team in 1976 was 15 and a half games ahead in mid-August. And then they just, the wheels fell off. And by mid-September, they were three games ahead. So everyone in Philadelphia is assuming the worst at this point in time. But they got it together and they figured it out. And um, and, and they got to the postseason, which is uh, pretty remarkable. With the 76ers now, we're talking 1970, still the same year. This is still this epic 1976 year. On October 20th, 1976, they purchased Dr. J from the New, New Jersey Nets. And the reason they had to do this because of the merge, this this was a racket. I mean, the NBA had the ABA over a barrel here. And they not only made the teams that they deemed survive, I think there were four that they allowed to merge in. They had to pay a $3 million expansion fee, first of all. Now, some of them were okay because I think Indiana was one of them. And I think San Antonio was one. So they didn't have any other teams necessarily to compete against. but the But the Nets did. And the Nets had to pay $4.8 million to the Knicks for invading their territory. Mm. I mean, it was a racket. They had them over a barrel, and New Jersey didn't have any other choice but to sell, uh, to, to get money from, for Julius Irving. Now, you know, the Sixers got him, but they had asked the Knicks first. The Nets asked the Knicks, as you waive that 4.8, and they said no. And sure enough, you know, the Nets get Julius Irving. And that was a big, big day for them. He only, you know, he was there 11 years in Philly. He was an all-star all 11 years. He had a 16-year career in the NBA. He was an all-star, you know, all 16 years. And he was Michael Jordan before there was Michael Jordan, for those of you too young to remember. And then November 21st, <laughs> Rocky is released, lifting the city again. So how about that remarkable run for the city of Philadelphia, starting with the Red Army game, the Spectrum hosting all those events, the Veterans Stadium hosting the Major League Baseball, the Phillies getting to the playoffs for their first time since 50, the Flyers uh, in their third consecutive Stanley Cup, the uh, 76ers get the piece of the puzzle they're going to need for their run for the next decade, and uh, the Eagles hire their coach. The Eagles hire their head coach. They did all of this in 1976. It's a remarkable time, and it's, mi it's, it's the mid-run of the Philly Philadelphia phenomenon. All right, let's go back what, to what, Can I ask one one quick question about that? Uh, yeah. the, the the final four. Was that the Indiana year 76? Was it yeah. uh, that was Indiana? Last team to yep. go undefeated in college basketball as well. So not only did they have the final four, they're still the city that hosted the last undefeated college basketball team of all time. That's remarkable. Yep. That's yep. remarkable. Yeah, nineteen seventy six. Wow. It is. It really is. You sound like you know, you sound like Tucker Carlson when you say that. You really do. I'm sorry, John. I'm really sorry. But you really do when you say that's remarkable. You just sound like <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I don't know if anyone's with me on this one. Probably not. All right. So part three is 77 to 1980. And we'll start with the uh, Philadelphia 76ers from 77 to 79. Uh, they were uh, 50. Well, first of all, they're 50 and 32. 
They get Julius Irving in 76, and that 76-77 season, they're 50-32. and 32. They make it to the NBA Finals. But Julius, Irving, Julius Irving's wife, her name is uh, Turquoise Irving, um, she said in March of 77, this is before they've even gotten to the playoffs, I feel, this is what she says, I feel we have the talent to win. I don't think they're playing much like a team. No one here respects Shue. This is their coach, Gene Shue. How many guys want to win one for Shoe? Not one. Sometimes not even for themselves. This is Dr. J's wife wow. saying this. And they ended up going to the playoffs. They ended up making it to the finals and losing in six games to the Bill Walton-led Portland Trailblazers. And in a much closer series than the six games would indicate. Uh, but she was fired immediately after that and uh, replaced by Billy Cunningham. Future Washington Bullet coach Gene Shue. Yep, and so 76ers win 55 games in 77-78 uh, and 47 games in 78-79 as they are getting all of these pieces together. So now the Eagles in uh, 77, they went from 19th uh, in the league in defense to 7th. It took them a while for their offense to get going, but their defense immediately turned around. It's because Dick Vermeil hired Marion Campbell. You've heard me talk about Marion Campbell. I put him on the same level as Lehman Bennett. <laughs> great coordinator, not a great head coach. Uh, let's see, 34, 80, and 1 as a head coach, Marion Campbell. That is not good. That is the opposite of not ungood. 34, 80, and 1. But he, he coached a great defense. The defense turned around already. It was number 7 in the league in 1977. He drafted Wilbert Montgomery. That year, Charlie Johnson, a great defensive player in 1977. Obviously, Montgomery could also catch out of the backfield, so he's multidimensional. He traded Charlie Young to the Rams in 1977 for Ron Jaworski. And um, then in 1978, they went to fifth in defense. In 1978 is when Herm Edwards, and, and uh, there's Wilbert Montgomery. I'm not even keeping track. There's Ron Jaworski. And here's the miracle at the Meadowlands with Herm Edwards recovering the fumble. This is 1978. They had lost the game. Joe Pasharik did not kneel down, and uh, it was fumbled. Herm Edwards goes in the other way. They win. They're 9-7 and seven that year. If they don't win this game, this miracle game, they're 8-8. Eight and eight. They don't make the playoffs. They lose by one point to the Atlanta Falcons. Um, and in 1979, they're 11-5. and five. They win the wild card, and then they lose their divisional game to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And that's your Eagles there. Now, the Phillies in 1977 get Bake McBride. They trade for Bake McBride, who was a, a, a huge element in their 1980 run. They had three straight divisional crowns, as we mentioned, lost in, in 77 as well. And in this time, it was to the Dodgers. And this was a rough one. It was tied one-to-one. It was in Philadelphia. So whoever wins this game, and remember, these are best of five series. So you, you win game three, that's the equivalent of a, of a key game five in a seven-game series. So they're up five to three in the top of the ninth at Veterans Stadium. There's two outs, nobody on. And there's a, 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 a little bloop single, and then Matty Moda hits it over the head of Greg Luzinski. If there was anyone else back there in left field, he probably would have caught it, threw it to second base. It gets away from him. You know, it's a comedy of errors. The Dodgers score three runs, break Philly's heart. They end up winning the series three to one. And in 78, the same thing. It's now game four, and uh, it's a close game again. And uh, the Dodgers in Los Angeles, 10th inning, walk-off single to go to the World Series against the New York Yankees. So it was a 
a rough time, but they had won three consecutive divisions. And, um, and then in 1979, Danny Ozark, who had been a great, great coach, uh, was fired 132 games into the season. Dallas Green takes over, and they sign Pete Rose in 1979 as well. And he promptly goes th- hits 331 and has 208 hits. But this was a team that was competing for the division and sort of fell apart late, which is why um, Danny Ozark got fired, replaced by Dennis Green. Or Dallas Green, I should say, not Dennis Green. That'd that would have been, been something. That would have been something. Danny Green had taken that gig. So now we're in 1980, and the 76ers win 59 games. They run through the Bullets. They run through the Hawks. They run through the Celtics. Do you remember in, back in this day, John, that the first series in, in the NBA, like through the 70s and a little bit of the 80s, it was a three-game series. Yeah, yeah, and then it changed to five. And it's hard three to remember games. when it was five, but yeah, three-game series. And that's what the new playoff system in, in Major League Baseball is going to be. So yes. you, know, you, you can have a juggernaut team and they happen to lose two out of three and they're done. Which is it's, why a lot of people are complaining about it. I Both you and I had, had been behind them expanding the playoffs. I'm glad they've done it. It's a one-off season, folks. Let it go. Let's just, let, it, let it go, and it's only 60 games, too. Right. So how much of a juggernaut could you really be after 60 games? <laughs> so the 76ers uh, get to the finals. And uh, as a matter of fact, in the playoffs, it's the Bullets, the Hawks, and the Celtics, and they beat them 10 to 2. And they win 10 games, they only lose two. So they run through the Eastern Conference. And then they meet up with the Los Angeles Lakers with Magic Johnson as a rookie who fills in for Kareem. Game six scores 42 points. It's a legendary game. But the 76ers were in the NBA Finals. Now, the, the, and there's, there's, uh, there they are. They're doing that. These are all things I should have. When I say there they are, by the way, on the podcast, yeah. these are additional pictures. Right. Me, me balancing, reading what I've written and, yeah. and doing the PowerPoint you're, has, you're taking been, on a lot. has been fraught. You're, you're taking on a lot. I'll let everybody know. We got a great picture of Julius Irving uh, showing off why he was Michael Jordan before he was my, before Michael Jordan. And the great Maurice Cheeks, who yeah. in the backcourt with Andrew Tony. Uh, they were just, uh, that was, that was a hell of a basketball team. That Sixers team. I liked them a lot, even though they were, uh, the bullets, you know, one of their yes. great nemesis, but that was, yes. that was a team that was easy to like. There's no doubt about it. And Billy Cunningham was easy to like as a head yes, coach. He was. As well. Yes, he was. So with the flyers, there's no Schultze. There's no Fred Shiro at this point in time, but they go 48, 12 and 20 in 79, 80. They run through the Oilers. The North Stars and the Rangers, that's 12 to 4. They win 12 games, lose four in those three playoff series. And then they lose to the uh, New York Islanders in six. But the Flyers, as well as the Sixers, are in the NBA and the NHL finals. And so in 1980, the Eagles, led by Ron Jaworski, who has an all pro year, by the way, they were 11 and 1 at one point in time. And they beat the Vikings and they beat the Cowboys lose to the Raiders in the Super Bowl. So here we are. We've got the Sixers, the Flyers, and now the Eagles all playing for a championship. There's Wilbert Montgomery. There's Dick Vermeil. He's uh, concerned during the Super Bowl. They 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 were a very, very good team, but they kind of ran out of steam, I think. They lost their last three out of four. They did sneak into, not sneak into the Super Bowl, but they, uh, I don't think they were as challenged in those two games. And then they, you know, they met a wild card team. The first wild card team to win right. the Super Bowl were the Oakland Raiders in 1980. That could be um, 
a, a fun deep dive. Yeah, that 79 Cowboy team, that was the first uh, Danny White quarterback to Cowboy team because Roger Staubach had had retired. So they, they were a little on the downside. But that and I remember that Super Bowl very well. I was on a ski trip in high school. Um, and it was one I watched very little of it. There was a bar in the lobby, but I was, you know, hanging with my friends and couldn't hang in the in the bar, obviously, to watch it. But uh, they've all said to a man that and Dick Vermeil has admitted that that team was very tight going into that because they hadn't been there before. And right. I, and they really felt tight. And that, you know, one of the hallmarks of those Oakland Raider, Los Angeles Raider teams was that they were loose. And the moment was was not too big for them at right. that point in Raider history. So, um yeah, that was a good, 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 good Eagle team, too. And how about Jaworski coming from the Rams? And I'm sorry, Mark, I, I have to just keep uh, doing this no, because great. I forgot. Jaworski comes from the Rams because yeah. he's buried on the depth chart because they have James Harris yep. and Pat Hayden on yep. that team. And, uh, you know, eventually Hayden ends up with that job, but they had three NFL quality starting good, very good starting quarterbacks at one time. They did. And I think uh, Jaworski beat out Harris at one point and then lost the job, as you mentioned, yeah. to Pat Hayden. And uh, so that was uh, that was a, a tough loss for them. But it was an amazing turnaround yeah. from a two win team in 1972 to playing for the championship in the Super Bowl against the Raiders in 1980. And so now we're now we're back to the Phillies and uh, the Phillies. And we should mention to 79, that was Staubach's. Yeah, that was Staubach's last year. So Danny White, his first three years, by the way, John, the Cowboys got to the championship game in all those three years. They lost, lost every one of them. Yes. Yep. So now we're in 1980. Phillies have, uh, they took the year off. They kind of fell apart at the end of 79. Their manager was fired. Now they've got Dallas Green running things. They've got Pete Rose. They've got Gary Maddox. This team is full tilt. And, um, you know, there's Larry Boa. There's Manny Trio. This is an amazing team. There's Greg Luzinski again. There's Mike Schmidt again. Pete Rose doing what he did. Gary Maddox. Steve Carlton. These guys were unbelievable. Tug McGraw. And you mentioned uh, Bake McBride, a name I hadn't thought about in forever. Yeah. Bake McBride and was big in 1980. Big ball. Great ball player. And, and so, uh, what happens is they win the division and they then compete with the Houston Astros and what I would say John even to this day is probably I would say the best NLCS I've ever seen of all time. Wow, better than 86? 86 was great. Also involving the Houston Astros. Also involving the Houston Astros and they also ended up on the short end of that stick yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But in this one this is a five-game series, remember, so the stakes feel a little bit higher. Four out of the five games are decided by a one run. It's They're down two to one, Philly. So they have to win two in a row. So in game four, Philly is down two to nothing in the eighth inning. They come, I'm, I'm sorry, they come back from a two-nothing deficit. They tie it in the eighth. And um, and then they, they go up by one in the eighth. The Astros tied in the bottom of the ninth. Phillies with two in the top of the tenth to win it. So they it was the eighth inning. They were down by two in the elimination game. So now here's game five. Nolan Ryan is pitching. This is the other part of why it's classic. Uh, the Phillies are down five to two in the eighth inning. And Nolan Ryan was pitching one of his Nolan Ryan games. <laughs> this is the eighth inning. I think one batter had gotten to third only because it was there was a walk and a stolen base. 
but he had scattered five hits throughout this, five singles, and he had retired 12 out of the last 14. So he was dealing. It was looking bad for Philadelphia. So now they explode in the eighth. They get five runs in the eighth. So now they're up seven to five. The Astros come back with two in the bottom of the eighth. (laughs) And now it's seven to seven. And then Gary Maddox, good old Gary Maddox, doubles home the winning run in the 10th inning. I remember watching that and thinking, this is unbelievable. This is different. And I'll tell you why. Because if you think about it, John, game four, they were down two to nothing. This was going to be yet another three to one series defeat, which is what they experienced against Los Angeles in 78 and in 77. And instead, they get to the World Series. Uh, it's it's amazing. And in and in the World Series, you know, it's it's a six game series. So people people don't think it's that competitive. Great. But again, the games were close. And in game five, the series was tied at two in game five. Um, Philadelphia was trailing three to two in the Kansas ninth. City. Yeah. Against Kansas City. And they win game five, four to three, and then win game six. In that game, Carlton, Steve Carlton, uh, goes seven innings, wins his third game of the postseason, and Tug McGraw saves it, wins, saves his fourth game of the postseason. And October 21st, 1980, at the end of that year, uh, and, and, of course, the Super Bowl extends it to a bit. But essentially, October 21st, 1980, is the end of this run, starting in 1972, this remarkable Philadelphia phenomenon. There's wow. the look. Once again, Flyers are 26-38 and 14-72. and 72. Eagles 2-11-1. and 76ers 9-73. and 73. Phillies are 59-103. and 103. And then every team plays for a championship. The Flyers, Eagles, 76ers make it to the Stanley Cup and NBA Finals and the Super Bowl. And the Philadelphia Phillies win the World Series. And um, what I love about this, John, is that you can kind of isolate. You can kind of isolate turning point moments. Yeah. For the 76ers, it's Pat Williams and then Dr. J. For the Eagles, it's Dick Vermeil. For the Phillies, it's probably Paul Owens. Yeah, I would agree. Yes. Who gets there, figures out what he has, and is able to build from there. And with the Flyers, I would have to say, on a lot of levels, it's Dave Schultz who comes in there and essentially sparks the identity of of the Broad Street Bullies, which then opens up all of those offensive lanes for those talented scores that they had. So and certainly um, mix him in with Fred Shiro and uh, Shiro's being ahead of the curve in just about everybody in the NHL um, at that point, yeah. to your point. Uh, yeah. That, that's, the, those are the guys who really, yeah, should be on the mural on the side of a, a, you know, the 40 year mural that should be on the side of some building in Philadelphia. Those should be the guys who are on there. And yeah. I love the fact, and, and really, I don't know why this didn't, um, come to mind, but that 76 hits dead smack in the middle of all of that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and, How about we, that? and we knew that, you know, listen, the leagues know what they're doing. Of course, they're going to put every single all-star game and everything in Philadelphia in 1976. Why would you not? Um, but it, but it is really, it is, it is really remarkable. And I remember particularly growing up in Washington, the Eagles, uh, were you know when there was just a team where if your team was playing them you didn't even bother watching the game 
Because if you're going to plan something on a Sunday, do it on a Sunday when the Washington football team is playing the Eagles because they were just it, yeah. it wasn't even as we thought of them. They were bad. We just didn't think about them. No, they just weren't in the mindset. And at some point, isn't Roman Gabriel the quarterback for them in this period? Ro- Roman Gabriel is Roman Gabriel is the starter that Ron Jaworski has to supplant. And, mm-hmm. and Roman Gabriel was a major journeyman at that point in time. Sure. But uh, yeah, you're right. 76 is this pivot year right in the middle of this run, right smack dab in the bicentennial. It's unbelievable. Crazy. It really you know, the, is crazy. The Red Army, uh, obviously every all-star game is going to be hosted in Philadelphia. Yeah. But the Red Army game, Philly goes Philly goes uh, to the postseason for the first time in 1950. And in that same season, they get the 76ers get Julius Irving and the Eagles get Dick Vermeil. It's just uh, – it's remarkable. So there it is. It really There's is. The deep dive. There's the Philadelphia phenomenon. And I apologize to everyone that I wasn't more <laughs> on it with my PowerPoint versus my reading. It's something that uh, we've got to kind of figure out a little bit more. But it wasn't bad. It was pretty no, good. No, I thought it, I thought it was terrific. And it, and they are great stories. And and to your point, there are deep dives in each one of these teams. You could do a deep dive of that Philadelphia. Uh, flyer team and how that oh, came yeah. about and how they ended up in Philadelphia. And, you know, honestly, there were about seven people in the city of Philadelphia who were interested in getting an NHL team there. That's true. Um, That's true. And uh, they really turned out to be the first club that brought everyone together because they were the first ones to have any, any success. If I'm correct about this as well, when they came into the league in 67, um, the, the other teams, they put a bunch of the expansion teams in together in a division. They so did. I believe the St. Louis Blues, which came into the league at the same time, were in the finals that second year, or maybe even, I think they were in the finals three years in a row because they basically and they were had, terrible. Yeah, they and I think it was Montreal, if I'm not mistaken, that beat them three years in a row. It yeah. was, uh, you know, yeah, all of the expansion teams were in one league <laughs> and. You know, all the original six were in the other. And that was it. And they were trying they were trying to get more people involved in in the NHL, which to the up to that point had been an incredibly regional sport. But yeah, yeah, and and it's amazing that it took till 1974 for a an expansion team to beat an original six team in the playoffs. Yeah. Yeah. And it it was tough as expansion teams then because Washington came in in 74 and I started going to games and they were horrible for probably six or seven years before they they were even you know, in a position to challenge by the last month of the season for, for the playoffs. But it, it, it is, it is pretty re- remarkable. It really is. They lost three of four of those series in 1980, which I think it, it, it is interesting. So they got the little taste, but, uh, they, they would come back, take the, take the Eagles an awfully long time to do it. But certainly the, and the, Phil, Flyers, Phil, the Flyers had already won too. Had already, and, had, and, uh, and the, um, 76ers were going to win in three. Yeah, yeah. They would win in th- three years later and they kept those guys together for a good period of time. Yeah. That 76ers team, very familiar with and them. And that like was still it. Pat Williams. And that was still, you mm-hmm. know, Pat Williams set up. He would, he was unbelievable the way he would make trades. He would, he would make trades for future draft picks. And we're talking six, seven, eight years into the future. Yeah. Pat, he's relentless. And uh, Pat Williams and you and I both interviewed Pat Williams on a num- number of occasions. I believe there are two or three books he's written about you and I interviewing him. Um, he, he's he's pretty prolific. Honestly, yes. makes Stephen King look lazy. 
when no, it comes no. to book writing. Yeah. But he's not he's, only he's, is, he's published 10 already during COVID. <laughs> he's written one on this show, which will be released yeah. at the end of this show. Um, Giving me a, a B minus, <laughs> I believe. Oh, come on. No, solid, solid show. Really enjoyable. But he is he is relentless. Um, he is a he is a great judge of personality and character that he really does seem to know how to put people together to succeed. And then uh, and unlike a lot of people that are like that, he's also such a great big picture guy. Pat, right. Pat Williams really sees the big picture because he is as responsible for the Orlando Magic being here as anybody. Oh, yeah. Oh, and yeah. at a time where, again, there were. You know, a handful of people in in Orlando who thought we're an NBA team. And I was in school in in Gainesville at the time, and it wasn't even a big story when it when it was happening that that was going to be the case. So, uh, yeah, just just a great story. Philadelphia, despite your comment at the ESPN club, it's a dirty town full of dirty people. Um, I, I think I think it's in spite of that. Not in right. spite of that. It's in spite of that because I think the team sort of reflected. Certainly the Broad Street bullies reflected that. Yeah. And uh, Bobby Clark reflected that because he became a very dirty player because right. he knew he knew he could. He knew he could get away with it. And, and, and he was, again, I can't stress enough, Bobby Clark prior to that was known as a, he, he was a finesse player. Oh, yeah, totally. It wasn't even, he wasn't one of these guys who fought a lot when he was in the minors and then came up to the, to, to the NHL and was a skater. No, no, he'd always been a finesse player. And you're right. This was the first uh, with those flyers. It was the first time the the Philly fans in a long time thought maybe we aren't a city of losers. But I will say this. I will say this, John. And I've said this a few times, and, and I think you agree with me. Um, you know, they were the last NL team, the Phillies, to integrate. Mm-hmm. Took them took them ten years. And also, all of the fans I know somehow love Ron Jaworski way more than Donovan McNabb, even though Donovan McNabb has accomplished a lot more than Ron Jaworski and got his team, got the Eagles a lot closer than Ron Jaworski did. That was kind of a blowout in 1980, yeah. like 27-10. And uh, Donovan McNabb and those Philadelphia Eagles, and I think 4 lost by three to a juggernaut New England Patriots team. So, uh, you know, there is that. There is that that needs to be said about, about Philadelphia. Yeah, it's funny how those things... Work out. Last team in the American League to uh, integrate was the Boston Red Sox, who passed on Willie Mays. That's a nice move. That's <laughs> the Dick James move of all moves. Uh, and Mark, Mark will get that reference. Is Dick James, who told the Beatles that guitar groups were on the way out. Well done, Dick. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, they were, you know, the, uh, the Washington Redskins were the last uh, team. And gosh, I can't, I can't call them that name anymore. The Washington football team uh, was the last to integrate in the NFL. But then, they actually uh, overcame that by having the first African-American quarterback to win an NFL championship. <laughs> That's a deep dive. Uh, it is. It is. We may we may get to that. I got something else on tap for next Friday. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, that that you want to make that announcement right now or not? Yeah. I, in fact, I am going to make that announcement uh, right now is uh, what I've decided uh, after Mark unilaterally decided that I had to do this every two weeks instead of every four weeks, which which I'd greatly, you know, because I got a lot. I got a lot going on. I got to watch. I know. I got to watch Hamilton again. And then I got to listen to Hamilton again. And then I have to uh, watch Hamilton again with the uh, with the subtitles. And then I then there are I have six Hamilton podcasts I'm listening to. So this is really cutting into that. Here's the Hamilton talk crawl now on the bottom of Jeff Taylor. But uh, next week's deck deep dive is going to be on the year in sports 19. 19- 
41 because folks we we we've, we've dealt with the 70s and we, have. Uh, we realized that uh you know Mark thought perhaps maybe we should maybe we should jump forward in the timeline to welcome some younger guests but um we don't we don't we don't have any younger guests or or listeners we we, we got people who want to People want history. So we're going to go back to 1941, a watershed year in the history of the world and a remarkable, remarkable year in sports in this country. Baseball, college football, boxing, horse racing, uh, professional football. Wow. Um, so, so now, John, Mark, we, you, you were expressing concern for me. Yeah. Taking on uh, an eight-year period with a single town, yeah, you're taking on a year period with regards to the planet, yes, and with regards to every sport that's yes. out there, not yes. just four. Yeah. Well, so I think it it's, seems I, like it's bigger to me. No, I think it's probably comparable because I only have to really deal with one year. True. Um, and uh, the historical parts of that year are well ingrained into my nerdy history mind so i don't even really have to i don't have to do any research i know when operation barbarossa started uh i Uh, there's just there's plenty of stuff june what june well we'll get to that in in the show well i mean a little tease mid-june of 40 41 how's that bad bad move bad move but yeah honestly and read a little history people come on fall in the same trap napoleon fell into for god's sakes um but uh we have that all of the all of the world war ii history uh and then um we get a surprise team in the world series versus a non-surprising team in the world series creating a subway series we have a triple crown winner that year we have a, a heavyweight fight with champion Joe Lewis uh, that is an historic fight. Uh, we have an NCAA college football champion that uh, would not visit and has not visited those dizzying heights since. Um, and uh, there's just a lot of there's a lot of stuff to unpack. There's a lot of stuff to unpack. I like Franklin it. Roosevelt is uh, inaugurated for a, um, a historic third term. In 1941, after a difficult uh, election year in 1940. Against Wendell um, Wilkie. Against Wendell Wilkie. And then, of course, in, in Major League Baseball, additionally, uh, to two of the events that have not happened since. Joe DiMaggio's 56-game hitting streak and Ted Williams finishes the the uh, season at 406. Um, and no one else has hit yeah. uh, 400 or better since. And no one's come. Uh, what's the closest anybody's come to the 56? Is it? Uh, 44, I think with Pete Rose, 44 with Pete. I think that, I think, I don't think anybody's come closer. Have they? I don't, I don't think so. That's I'll certainly look into that. I'll I'll certainly look into that. And I think, uh, maybe George Brett, uh, maybe George Brett or Tony Gwynn in the 94 season. Um, one of those two, I think got pretty close in the three eighties. If I'm not mistaken, to, to yeah, get 400. for the so yeah, and we've had guys who were over 400. I think in late July, a couple of guys. I remember a number of years ago, somebody and and, and I'll have all of that uh, for you. I'd love the, for that to happen that this year. Wouldn't that be fun? In the postscript, yes, it would have like seven asterisks, uh, unless it was a Yankee, and then it would be considered the greatest uh, thing to ever happen to this mankind. Whole, this whole season is going to have an asterisk 
over it. It's going to be planted on it. Which is, it which is, is why we said, you and I both said, expand the playoffs. Do some fun. things you wouldn't otherwise do. I hate the designated hitter thing, but I understand why they're doing it. And it's going to do away with pitchers batting, uh, sadly, I think, probably. Well, why, why do you mean now? What do you mean? It, the it, pitchers were one for 63 in the playoffs. Oh, it's one, a wasted at bat. Uh, it's a wasted at bat. Honest to God, just drives me bat crap crazy unbelievable it's the only league in the world that doesn't have that no there's something exciting about pitching around the eight hitter so you can get to the pitcher you know but that generally comes from yankee fans and as i've said they're not baseball fans they're just yankees fans um so uh embrace it embrace that you have this sprint to the finish tournament love that they have expanded the tournament at this point in time i think it's going to be i think it's going to be a great deal of fun it's i do too I, I mean, I'm only 50-50 or less on if they can get through all of this. But a uh, couple of couple of troubling stories today about uh, guys testing positive. Um, and uh, so we'll see. We'll see what happens. But uh, I certainly do appreciate the tournament aspect of it, expanding the playoffs. Well, I think it's going to be great. Uh, and I'll tell you, the cutouts are helping. The cutouts help me. <laughs> do they really? They help my depression. The Mary Hart cutout that's there know, at Dodger Stadium. It, so it, it looks like Mary Hart. In like 1980, <laughs> like good God, Mary, gotta get a headshot from the 21st century for God's sake. <clears throat> nah, Mary so, still looks terrific, but uh, yeah, she does. She so that you, you, fun. you, I do like the cutouts. The cutouts, you do like the cutouts. I mm. do. I love. Okay, them. all right, because because just the empty seats are like this is just like they're just out there just throwing the ball around. And but I'll tell you what, you know what, it, you know what, it's a lot like Mark. What attendance to Major League Baseball games were in 1941. It's true. We've talked about that. We've we've studied that with baseballreference.com and it's remarkable. It's remarkable. Now, in the 50s it's even more remarkable because that was always referred to as sort of a golden era right. for Major League Baseball, but uh, attendance, I mean, there there are there are teams that get 4 or 500 folks a game on a semi-regular basis, right? Yeah. Now, in 1941, most games were, uh, there were only a handful of games that were played at night. They were played in the afternoon during the day, so it makes it a little more difficult to get to the games. Why it took the owners so long to realize that the investment in lights would pay off within a season, probably, from season ticket sales, who knows? But uh, we'll go into the history of that. And uh, Larry McPhail, who was the uh, general manager of the Brooklyn Dodgers at that time and had a lot to do with night baseball as well just just real interesting stuff and you know the team that inaugurated that they had the first game with lights i believe was cincinnati cincinnati reds yeah cincinnati we learned that in my deep dive a few weeks ago yep yeah 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 cincinnati was the first and uh it was they fought against it but uh yeah so that's what it reminds me of it's like watching a game in 41 with like 600 people scattered through the thirty-eight thousand seats at uh, ebbets field and as my nephew, Brian Winnegar, has said to me when I brought this up, telling him uh, that baseball has never been healthier, he says there are just more people now, which well, there I are. guess is true. There are more people. But I think it has I a lot more to do with disposable income and certainly playing at night. Um, yeah. The thing we're reading about 41 that you will uh, – uh, I'm going to throw you uh, – I have two books that I'm reading on this, uh, making notes from, is um, – uh, the, uh, 
there there are just that thought just completely went out of my mind because I know you're reading something else and not paying attention to me for those no, I'm, you, I'm totally you, those paying attention to you I'm totally see it's just uh, the, the just, thing that you will find out and remember the thing you'll find interesting is how many double headers they played I, I know it's so weird how many double headers I wonder played. what turned on that I wonder if baseball itself thought it wasn't worth it if the players agreed like one of those things that you know when the union and the ownership agree on something you know it's going to get done and possibly and maybe, maybe i think more of it. It i love double headers back in the day i think more of it had to do with back mm-hmm. then and certainly you're talking depression and just pre-war years when you know people didn't have a lot of spending money was that those double headers you either paid the price of one ticket to go to both games or it was very very discounted so i think uh owners once night baseball came into play, they, they realized that they could just they'd make a lot more money by not playing double headers, stretching out the games. Yeah, they couldn't charge people back then. You say it was, you know, five dollars to get into a game. People might be able to drop five dollars to go to a game. Nobody could drop, you know, ten dollars to go to two on the same day. So they gave them you know seven fifty for those tickets or whatever it was. Um but, uh, yeah, that's I, I would have liked to have seen a little more of that in the 60 game season, to be quite frank, is if they'd have done a little more doubleheader stuff. All right. Well, folks, that does it for us. I hope you enjoyed the deep dive. I hope uh, if you're listening to the podcast, it wasn't too distracting on a couple of the technical issues that I myself encountered. But I had a good time researching this and uh, I do have a very soft spot for Philadelphia. A lot of good friends who have lived there. And uh, and I've enjoyed my time visiting there, and I just still find it a phenomenal uh, thing that happened to all four teams. I mean, it is the Philadelphia phenomenon from the depth of despair to a place in 1980 where every single team competed for the championship. And Joe Connolly, one of our listeners who's a big Cowboy fan, is was thrilled, was thrilled that three out of those four teams in 1980 <laughs> had a heartbreak. Wow. Wow. My goodness. My goodness. All right. For Jeff Taylor, John. He's a Cowboy fan. There's heartbreak in his future. Trust me. Yes, indeed. I'm Mark Ferreira. I hope you've enjoyed it. Stay safe, everyone. We'll talk to you next time.